Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is someone who spends his time making innovations more accessible to patients. He has a passion for dealing with the inequity of access to clinical trials, particularly as they relate to ethnic minority groups. It was a great pleasure to speak with Arkez Starling. You're very welcome to the show, Arkez Starling. Uh, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you're in the business of making clinical trials and innovations more accessible to the people who need them most, the patients, people who have got the problem that could be could benefit from those innovations. And you started to tell me about the story of your mother and where this journey began for you. And I'd like you to relate that story again. Tell us what happened. The company that essentially I have founded is Ravel's Clinical Service. And as I shared, it was really spiritual for me because I witnessed firsthand my mother's personal odyssey with being diagnosed with a rare disorder. That odyssey was preceded by having to essentially start out seeking answers at her personal with her primary care physician and ultimately going from specialist to specialist to specialist to the tune of roughly about eight different specialists before we were actually uh, able to receive some closure and a proper diagnosis, which expanded over about 18 months. And so we were we were excited to obviously seek closure because we understand that many rare disease patients still don't have closure and are able to properly receive a diagnosis. We were only quickly met with the fact that the fact that she did not have you had the diagnosis, but there wasn't actually a treatment. And so naturally, in my capacity of being responsible for running a clinical research business for a very large company, the question was asked. Uh, surely there's a trial. And we began to research that uh, if there was any clinical trials, and there were, however, they were not accessible. It uh, was really that sentinel moment that set me out on uh, this journey to really determine why patients that are willing to participate in clinical trials and often are very motivated to uh, participate in clinical trials often do not have access or awareness uh, to clinical trials. And, and that's when I began to make it my, my life's work and provide a sense of purpose for me to be able to expand, really extend clinical trials activity to patients uh, in the comfort of their home with rare and complex diseases. Mm. What does the geography of that look like at the moment? So if I develop a rare disease, even in the country that where I work uh, here in Australia, uh, we've heard from previous guests that they've had to get advice from websites in the US to tell them about trials that are happening here in this country. It sounds as if science has progressed to the point where we can begin to deal with things that we currently believe in practice are untreatable or have a very poor prognosis, but that isn't the case. How is this going to change and what is the current what is the current status of that? Yeah, I think a couple of things to, to highlight, uh, highlight there during these discussions. Again, with nearly 7,000 known rare diseases and nearly 30 million Americans, 30, uh, 30 million Americans, roughly 10% of the population are actually diagnosed with one of 
the 7,000 known rare diseases. And what we find is, is that many of those patients have, I think it's roughly 80% of them uh, are genetic uh, origin. And so when you begin to look at uh, how you can gain access to these clinical trials, many of the sites, the research sites are, they're isolated to the centers of excellence, therapeutic centers of excellence. And if you are a patient who actually does not live in an appropriate uh, distance uh, from those locations, often the travel and the logistical burden is too much. And so there is a real direct cost for those patients who who may or may not have the have the means to be able to participate. And again, that was my very situation where I had a mother who was definitely uh, willing and had overcome her own personal barriers around lack of trust with the healthcare system here, the lack of the history that we have in the U.S. for African-Americans being, you know, uh, engaged in scrupulous uh, medical practices. And so despite that, she was willing to participate, but, but really only to be met with the fact that the trials were not accessible to her. And so if you look at the density of where clinical trial activities are taking place across the U.S., it's really Northeast. There are some concentration uh, on the West Coast. There is a little bit of concentration on the southeast, but in in the in the the mid Midwest or kind of the heart of the U.S., it's a little bit of barren place for those who are willing to participate. What inequity there is is now being multiplied by the fact that you live in the wrong town, in the wrong part of the country, and probably the wrong part of the world. Correct. And I, I think one of the other things that we experienced was the fact that he, even as a healthcare professional, very experienced, I would consider myself sophisticated in being able to navigate some of the actual resources, online resources. I found it to be very difficult to learn about clinical trials, the status of the clinical trials, how to ultimately move beyond interest and ultimately to engagement or uh, expressing interest. Despite earlier to your comments, there's been great innovation in medicine, and certainly we're excited about the development of many of the therapies that are coming to the marketplace. But the fact that we still have challenges, and and one of the most pervasive challenges that are being met today is the fact that it's around patient recruitment and engagement. And that really starts with awareness and understanding how to be uh, properly engaged in clinical trial activity. So when the rubber hits the road, Awareness is one thing. How do you get that trust? How do you get the patients in your part of the world, or in the, at least in the central part of the US, interested and able to participate in a trial that's taking place somewhere in the north, the northeast? Yeah, I think what we've seen is there has been most recently, I think, seemingly overnight with COVID nineteen. The proliferation of uh, integrated technology and digital health assets has certainly accelerated the discussion around how do you engage patients when they're geographically dispersed. The advent of using your smartphones and other, again, other digital tools are really, quite frankly, the new frontier for clinical research. And so, so being able to go out into those communities 
I think I think equally as important is to engage uh, the patients around educating them about clinical trials. I think one of the things that we've learned through our research and our engagements is that principal and get investigators, the physician investigators, play such a critical role in being able to introduce and create the level of awareness around clinical trials is so important. And so having kind of a multi-pronged approach certainly helps with uh, garnering trust in the communities. If you're taking more specifically some of the things that we're seeing around the lack of diversity, uh, we do know that we need to come to those communities understanding that there is certainly a history that warrants distrust and that we need to be very uh, mindful of the fact that that those communities are somewhat skeptical and their perceptions of clinical research is jaded by our history. And so uh, we first have to build rapport in those communities. I think starting with the local community groups, I think starting with patient advocacy organizations uh, are so important to be able to help build the rapport. Um, But I think also, too, I think we need to really begin with trying to understand the disease manifestation, understand the patient's odyssey and how their lives are essentially they are being involved around having these very rare and complex diseases. That makes an awful lot of sense. And I think about it, my patients in my practice are more likely to do something if I suggest it, if I say, this is something that you should look at. Here is a link to the internet site, but this is something that I feel very strongly may be of value to you. But of course, it's getting to me as well as getting to my patients. That's the sweet spot, isn't it, really? It's not, it's not just about going to patients and saying, look, here, guys, there's a trial happening that will help you because they don't know you from a bar of soap, as they say here. <laughs> they, that's, that's they, know their, they know their family doctor. They know their practice nurse. They know other people who they've had a long association with and they saw when they had the flu or whatever it happened to be. Tell me about that. How does that work in your way of thinking about this? Yeah, it, I, think, I think you're spot on. I think one of the things that we are very uh, deeply committed to is really helping increase the, the overall interest and engagement from minority physicians. We believe that if we can begin to provoke the discussion around uh, having more minority physicians that engage in clinical research, that the likeliness of them, you know, obviously moving through the appropriate trainings and requirement and ultimately being engaged in research will ultimately help aid in increasing the diversity, particularly for racial and ethnic minorities and those communities that are underserved. We think that's a really critical point in the U.S. There is a statistic that often the U.S. Uh, FDA has has cited at some of our conferences is that 75% of all new principal investigators will only do one clinical trial and they will not do another one after that initial clinical trial. And so that's pretty significant in terms of their outlook and their perceptions on the overall burden associated with clinical trials is often what's cited. So if we can address a part of the problem with increasing awareness and expanding access is really having more physician 
principal investigators that are engaging in discussions around clinical trial activity. Tell me about Black Men in White Coats. What is that? Yes, Black Men in White Coats is an organization that essentially is really founded around initiative to provide support to medical students, minority medical students, particularly uh, Black men, African-American men who have a very alarming rate of failure when they're actually in medical school. And so this organization was identified that that was uh, pretty significant for the fact that we have very small and sparing admittance rates for medical school. But once you get in school, we found that there was a disproportionately high dropout rate for these students. And so this organization has done a great job with really providing mentorship, really promoting advocacy for students that are interested in studying medicine, and really promoting the physician profession. And it's a great organization. They're continuing to expand. And again, it's one of the organizations that we strongly believe in their mission and their vision, and, and certainly would help and aid in our, our mission and vision of really increasing uh, the diversity in clinical trials. Mm. Do we have an inkling why there is such a, an increased dropout rate among those students? Yeah, there, there's probably a lot of things to consider, but a lot of it has to do with just being able to support those medical students. Uh, obviously, the academic rigor is tough. But uh, certainly some of that is contributing to it. And so that's why mentoring, being able to, to sign those students with someone who is essentially kind of walked in their shoes and can help provide best practices on how to balance the rigor of, of studying and going through their, you know, obviously their, their training, whether it's residencies or other, uh, their other clinical training. And sometimes it can be financials, it, which is often you know, a consideration. And then the other consideration is just the mental aspect of it can certainly take a toll. So being able to, again, provide not, not, not only mentoring, but also to be able to help with mental support for these uh, students during this time is certainly a critical component. Sounds fantastic. The, the other area I wanted to touch on, something you mentioned earlier, where clinicians will not engage in more than one clinical trial, as the FDA has noted. Do we know the reason for that? What has been cited is often the uh, level of complexity for managing clinical research along with managing the clinical practice. And so if you think about some of the smaller uh, independent research sites, typically they will likely not be adequately resourced they may have one or two coordinators or a support personnel or a nurse who or someone who is assuming oversight. And in addition to their primary responsibilities, they're assuming oversight over the clinical trial activities. And it tends to be, again, a, a tremendous workload increase to manage that. And so often what is cited is uh, an increase in administrative burden is great. and uh, uh, often greater than the the willingness to move forward on being able to engage in other clinical trials. Yeah. So there are the the challenges, the challenge of getting 
uh, particularly people from ethnic minorities, to be involved in clinical trials. Because as we know, if they are not involved in clinical trials, the results of that trial do not represent their particular ethnicity. I may not be applicable to them when it comes to clinical practice, and, and they may come to harm, in fact, if, if those drugs are then used in that setting. So yes, we can see that it's engaging the clinicians, the clinicians who are, as you say, working very hard already at the co-face and then having to now consider taking part in research, which is often over and above the work that they're doing. But you, Arkes, bring a breath of fresh air in the sense that you're saying the future could look very different. So let's talk about that. Where do you see all of this going in the next five to 10 years? I, I'm incredibly bullish on the future. I think the future is incredibly bright for our industry. Those that choose to make their vocation and their life work in helping and aiding others, I think I'm incredibly excited about what the future holds. I think today, the focus is on the development of a, a vaccination and ultimately you know, a treatment for COVID-19. And there's great excitement about that. But uh, I think the continual innovation and proliferation of digital health assets that can be used to allow patients to be, again, proactively to be re- you know, remotely monitored or passively monitored is really exciting. So whether it's a Fitbit or a smartwatch or a digital peel, there's excitement there around uh, ingestible persistent and adherence uh, tools that allow you to see that the patient actually took the medication. And so there's, uh, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope. And I see that, uh, again, it's the intersection of where these digital tools combined with passionate and <laughs> very knowledgeable healthcare and life science leaders coming together figure out how we can continue to really spare our industry forward and to make therapies that are affordable, that are safe, uh, that are efficacious, and ultimately helping improve clinical outcomes for all. Mm. You're right. I would share that enthusiasm because before COVID-19, we flirted with these kind of technologies. We were quite ambivalent about it. COVID-19 changed that completely because if we, were, if we could not contact these people, if we could not engage people, there was going to be no innovation. And that was the big worry. And of course, the industry had to step up in order to get that resolved. And what you're saying is that we are beginning to really ride that horse properly in the, in the, Texan, in the Texan way. <laughs> Absolutely. Well done. Well done. Well played. <laughs> And get, uh, and get some real action happening in terms of where this is all going. And of course, with all the political changes and the fact that we are now beginning to recognize that the ethnic minorities, particularly in the US, but across the world, need a voice. They need to be part of the solution to the healthcare Indeed. issue and, and many other issues. Absolutely. I was really excited about the, one of the questions that you kind of you asked about you know, kind of advice for other healthcare professionals. And, and it really spurred uh, an experience for me that I wanted to share was when I was a senior in high school, my sister, she provided a very thoughtful gift 
it was a, a glass bottle with a ship inside. And engraved on the bottom of the glass bottle with the ship inside was a very famous quote that you probably heard, which is, we cannot control the winds, but we can adjust ourselves. And I think about how apropos that quote is for us today, which it speaks to the level of adaptivity that we have to be in an ever-changing environment. And the fact that we've been able to see adaptivity across the globe has been fantastic. Whether it's, again, the proliferation of leveraging telemedicine. I had I spoke with someone today that said that they are a large U.S. organization. They were doing about 100,000 telemedicine visits. They said this year, they're approaching almost a million. So an 800 to 900% increase in, in how we've been able to move in a very innovative way, an adaptive way to be able to ensure that we continue to provide care uh, to those who need it most. What a perfect way to end a brilliant conversation. It's been a joy speaking with you, Arquez. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>